Let's turn in the scripture to John 17. John 17 is what we're reading and studying today. Throughout John's account of the gospel, throughout this biography of Jesus, he's been explaining that Jesus is the Son of Man. And that means that Jesus is the creator become human. He's God become man. And he is the one human under whose authority every other human will submit. He's the one who's going to judge all rebellion on earth. He's the one who has the power and authority to undo the curse that this world has been under since Adam. But according to John, the most shocking thing about the Son of Man, the most authoritative human, is he gave his life for others. He humbled himself, and in fact, he sacrificed himself so that anyone who willingly submitted their lives to him would have refuge from the judgment of God that we're all due. It's incredible. This message, which is called the gospel, the good news, the book is called the gospel according to John because John is recounting the greatest news in the world. The gospel begins in John chapter 1, goes through 12 chapters with John basically saying Jesus did a lot of things to convince us eyewitnesses that he's in fact the son of man. He is this long-awaited authoritative figure who is God become human and who has the authority of God to forgive and to rule. Jesus did things like turning water into wine. He did things like making blind people see multiplying bread, raising the dead. And John's going to say that Jesus did so many things like this. He only recounts in the first 12 chapters seven examples. But he says this is enough for you to be convinced that Jesus is in fact who he claimed to be and to put your faith in him. And then beginning in chapter 13, he started giving counsel to those who had submitted to him, to those who aligned their lives with reality. They were convinced Jesus is the Son of Man. They committed their lives to him. And Jesus says, I'm getting ready to leave. And you're going to suffer a lot. And here's how I want you to persevere in love in a very hostile world. How to persevere in love for me commitment to me, though it's going to be hard. Here's how you need to persevere in commitment to one another, even though it's going to be hard. And these words of counsel in chapters 13 through 16 end with Jesus praying for his disciples, whom he's about to leave. So here in chapter 17, we're studying one prayer, all right? I have three slightly humorous preliminary observations to make before we read it. The first observation begins by taking a look at chapter 18, verse 1. 
Look at 18.1. We're not reading this today, but it's right after the prayer. John, of course, is one of the eyewitnesses who's with Jesus on this evening. He's with Jesus on this very dark evening before Jesus is about to be crucified. He observes that when Jesus finished his prayer, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. In other words, it wasn't until he finished the prayer that they left the house, they departed where they were, and that was the house they had dinner in together. But now, keep a finger here and flip a few pages back to the end of chapter 14. Look at the last line of chapter 14. John 14, 31, very last line. Jesus told his disciples after he finished what he said in chapter 14, rise, let's go from here. So there in chapter 14, Jesus says, okay guys, let's head out. And in chapter 18, they actually left. Many people wrestle with the question of where chapters 15, 16, and 17 take place. Many, in fact, throughout history have claimed there is an obvious error. These must have been two accounts that were kind of haphazardly put together. That's foolish because it's easily explained. Have you ever said, okay, I got to go, and then 30 minutes later you actually leave? (laughs) Every Sunday. Simply put, Jesus says, let's go, and then takes another half hour talking with them about the burdens on his heart and praying for them. So if you're a host in your home and you often say, okay, I think it's time to wrap up. Let's, uh, let's start moving toward the door. And then 30 minutes later, After talking a bit more and maybe praying together, you say, okay, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. If that's you, you're actually (laughs) Christ-like. Honey, I'm actually (laughs) Christ-like. That was for her. (laughs) Second, notice from the very first verse of John 17 that it's okay to pray with your eyes open. Jesus prayed this really long prayer with his eyes lifted upward to the sky. Maybe in the house they were on the rooftop. It's called the upper room. Not sure where it would have been in the house and what the ceiling would have been like. Maybe They were down on the threshold. Maybe he was standing outside the door and some of the disciples were in and some of the disciples were out. He's looking up to the sky. Not sure. Maybe he's just in a room looking up at the ceiling. But he is praying with his eyes wide open. We often pray with heads bowed and eyes closed. And as far as I can tell, that's a tradition that's gone back maybe 500 years And I think the reasons it's been encouraged are pretty good. It helps us to personally focus. It helps us not to get distracted. But interestingly, there is not one example in the Bible of people closing their eyes in prayer. 
Of course, there's nothing bad about closing your eyes in prayer, unless you're driving. (laughs) And it certainly can help minimize distraction. But I'd encourage you, if you don't pray much with your eyes open, try it more. It brings a profound reality to your prayer life. Third observation. This is not original with me. It's been observed hundreds of times that what we have in John 17 is actually the Lord's Prayer. Many of us know that what Jesus taught in Matthew 6 when he said to his disciples, pray like this, our Father in heaven, may your name be exalted, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth. That's actually the way disciples should pray. So many people have more accurately called that, not the Lord's Prayer, but the disciples' prayer. What we have here in John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of the Lord Jesus. It is the Lord's Prayer, truly. And now I want us to read it together. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh, that's the definition of what it means to be the Son of Man, he has the right to give eternal life to all people whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus, the Messiah whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You read what Jesus prayed with his disciples that night, that God would glorify him now with the glory that He enjoyed with God the Father before the world existed. And everyone should scratch their heads and say, who does this guy think he is? Jesus' prayer now kind of shifts from focusing on himself to focusing on his 11 disciples who are with him. He says, verse 6, I've manifested your name, or I've shown exactly what you're like to the people you gave me out of the world. Of course, Jesus is referring to his 11 disciples with whom he's lived and walked. Look at how he thinks about them. Father, yours they were, and you, Father, gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So Jesus thinks that these 11 disciples belonged all along to God that the Father gave Jesus these disciples as a gift, and they've become convinced that Jesus, in fact, is the revelation of God the Father. They're convinced of it now. So we praise now that they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I've given them the words you gave me, and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they've believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them, Father. 
I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for those whom you've given me. They're yours. All are mine, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. Again, you step back, and you say, the only way you can make a statement like Jesus makes there at the beginning of verse 10, Father, what's yours is mine, and what's mine's yours. The only way you make a statement like that is if you're God, if you're equal with God. And Jesus says, verse 11, and I am no longer in the world or going to be physically in the world, but they're still going to be in the world. Father, I'm coming to you. So Holy Father, keep them in your name or protect them by your power, which you've given me, that they may be one, united in truth and love, even as we, Father, are one. While I was with them, he's referring to the past few years, I protected them by your power in your name, the name which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus, of course, is referring to Judas. Judas voluntarily chose to sell out on Jesus, and in doing so, he only fulfilled God's perfect plan and centuries-old prophecy Jesus says he walked away like the scriptures said he would. But now, Father, verse 13, I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they might have joy fulfilled in themselves. He's praying for these 11 disciples who are about to face a world of hostility. He says, I've given them your word. That means the truth about me that I'm the perfect revelation of you. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The evil one, Satan, this demonic spirit who would love to unravel their commitment to Jesus, who would love to weaken their convictions about Jesus. He's praying that God would protect them from their enemy. He says, verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In other words, Father, keep them devoted, entirely consecrated to the truth they've become convinced of that I am your perfect revelation. He says, as you sent me, Father, into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in the truth or wholly committed, entirely devoted to the truth. And now Jesus shifts his prayer from the 11 to us. Verse 20, I do not ask for these 11 only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, their testimony about Jesus that's recorded in the New Testament. I pray, Father, that they, he's referring to us, generations that would trust in Jesus after the first generation of disciples. He says, I pray that they would all be one or united in truth and love, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. 
Now this, you and me, and I and you, and us and them, it's profound. I think it is helpful to unravel it just a little bit so that we can understand it, but it is profound. It is worth thinking on all week. It's worth thinking on the rest of your life. Jesus is basically saying, Father, I perfectly reveal to people exactly what you're like. You're in me. I'm the perfect revelation of you. And when people accept that I reveal your love, they're forever reconciled not only with me, but with you, because I'm in you. And they will forever experience our love. They will forever be in relationship with us. You're in me. I'm in you. We're in them. He says, verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, I've shared with them, so that they may be one even as we're one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, united in the truth of who Jesus is, and perfectly loving toward one another, having a love that's grounded in the love of God the Father for the Son and the Son for the people he died to save. And all this, we would be united in truth and love so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is the pinnacle of the mountain. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, exactly what you're like, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. John 17 is unspeakably rich. I am barely scratching the surface in my attempt to explain it this morning. In fact, one of my favorite pastors from the previous generation who was on the radio program, the Bible Study Hour, his name's Jim Boyce, or James Montgomery Boyce. When he was teaching John 17, he taught it in 17 messages. In his commentary, it fills over 100 pages. I'm speaking one message. As I'm working through it, I'm thinking, this needs so much more than I'm giving it. But my goal this morning is not to uncover every rock. My goal is to step back and get the big picture, and it is an incredible big picture. In fact, if you understand the main thing that Jesus is praying for, it will change your life. It will give unshakable direction to your life, purpose for your life. It'll give an unshakable sense that you are loved and valued by the greatest human who's ever lived, the human who will return to reign as king on this planet.
What Jesus is praying for in a word is glory. He's praying for glory. The term glory is only used eight times in the chapter. I say only eight. Eight times. But it is the driving concept in the chapter. What is glory? What is glory? Well, glory refers to something that is remarkable. Something that's worthy of praise If I talk about your most glorious character quality, I'm talking about the thing about you that's most remarkable. It's worthy of comment and praise. Or the verb to glorify. It actually means if you're glorifying someone, you are actually showing how deserving of honor and praise they are. When you glorify someone, you're saying, I am pointing out just how deserving of honor that person is. So I'm going to try to put it in street talk, okay? When Jesus in verse 1 prays, Father, glorify me so that I may glorify you, he's basically praying this. Father, show people how awesome I am so that I can show people how awesome you are, how worthy of praise you are. Show people how awesome I am so I can show people how awesome you are. So I'd state the main point like this. Jesus prays that God would show how awesome he is. That his 11 disciples would persevere in believing and declaring how awesome he is. They've become convinced of his glory. In fact, his glory is now in them. Father, protect them. And he prays that future generations of the church would see how awesome he is. That's multifaceted, that word, see how awesome he is. So Jesus prays that God would show how awesome he is. That his 11 disciples would persevere in believing and declaring just how awesome he is. And that future generations of the church would see how awesome he is. His glory. Those are three interwoven facets of glory. And I want to unpack each of those three facets of glory. So we work through this prayer and then I'm going to end with four ways that this should shape our lives, all right? I will come back to this screen as a summary after I've worked through these three facets of glory. When Jesus prays, Father, glorify me, he's first praying, this is the focus of the first five verses, that God the Father would show at the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, just how awesome he is. Jesus prays that God the Father would show just how awesome he is at the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. I especially get this from that phrase in verse 1 where Jesus says, Father, the hour's here. Glorify me. 
It's the hour when Jesus is shown to be the greatest. Imagine that. Jesus is shown to be the greatest while he's dying naked, bleeding out on a cross. That is the moment we will never, ever, ever get over. That the Son of Man laid down his life for us. The Son of Man became our servant. Jesus, at his lowest, in a sense, was, in his, was at his highest. And his resurrection proved it. His death paid for our sin, and his resurrection showed that the payment was made in full. And Jesus says, Father, I pray that in what's about to happen in the next day, you'd show just how awesome I am. I'm the one who can give anyone who turns to me eternal life. And he says, and that is life, Father. Actually, me bringing people into relationship with you, that is life. To know God, the life giver. To be rightly related to him through Jesus, that is life. So if you think Jesus is the only way that I can be rightly related to God and experience eternal life, on a perfected planet, you have come to see his glory. That's how awesome he is. And he goes on in verse 5 and says, people are going to be convinced how awesome I am when I ascend to heaven. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus was elevated into the skies and he took his seat on the throne with his father. So while Jesus was on earth, you probably would have looked at him and said, who does he think he is? His physical appearance wasn't all that impressive. You wouldn't have said, wow, that guy's awesome by physical appearance. But if you could see him today, like Stephen did a few years later, like this very author John did when he was persecuted on the island of Patmos, he records it in Revelation 1. If you could see Jesus today, his glory would terrify you. And if you've taken refuge in him and then comfort you, you'd be terrified with his glory. And then you'd be comforted by it. God the Father, in the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, showed how awesome Jesus is. That's what Jesus was praying for in these first five verses. Now, especially in our day, people read things like this and they say, Jesus is selfish. Father, show people how awesome I am? Really? This guy is full of himself. But notice specifically the final phrase of verse 1, That if Jesus is shown to be awesome, he knows that his father is going to be shown to be awesome. And this is because of who Jesus is. He is a person like no other. From the beginning to the end of the gospel according to John, Jesus knows that he is the perfect revelation of his father. So when people look at Jesus on the cross... They not only think, wow, 
What a self-sacrificial loving man. They say, God is like that. Jesus is revealing the Father perfectly, completely. And when people see Jesus walk out of the tomb alive, they say, he has authority to, to make dead things live. He has authority to conquer the grave. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm perfectly revealing my Father. He's the one who has the power of life and death. And when Jesus ascends into heaven and his disciples think, wow, Jesus is on the throne. Yeah, God, his Father, is sovereign. He rules over the world. Jesus, when we realize how awesome he is, we realize how awesome his Father is because he is perfectly revealing to us what God is like. To stand in awe of Jesus is to stand in awe of the Father whom he's revealing. So, in this prayer, Jesus is praying for glory. He's praying that first God the Father would show just how awesome he is in the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension so that Jesus would be able to show the world just how awesome God is. Second facet of Jesus' prayer for glory. Jesus wants God the Father to protect his 11 disciples so that in a hostile world, they'll keep believing and joyfully proclaiming just how awesome he is. Jesus wants God the Father to protect his 11 disciples so that in this hostile world, they'll keep on believing and keep on joyfully proclaiming just how awesome he is. This is the second facet of his prayer in verses 6 to 19. He's about to leave these disciples and he's praying, although they're presently convinced, Father, of my glory, that I completely reveal you, I come from you, I've spoken the truth to them about you, that I'm the only way to you, the only way to be reconciled to you. Jesus says, even though they presently believe it, now that I'm about to leave, they're going to face hostility, and I pray that they would keep on believing it in this hostile world. He's praying that they would persevere in remembering his awesome glory and that they'd not fall away. And it's in this section that he brings up Judas. Judas defected according to God's mysterious plan. Judas defected. And Jesus prays that God the Father will protect every other disciple from defecting. Of course, the tension comes because Jesus is leaving them in the world, though they have come to have a character that's distinct from the world. The world is marked by saying, God, I don't want you to be the authority over my life. And they have come to know the true God and accept his authority, accept first his forgiveness through Jesus and then his authority through Jesus. And so they're of a completely different character. They submit to the authority of the one true God who's revealed himself in Jesus. But the world by and large does not. And Jesus knows that this is going to create tension. They are of a distinct character from the world, but they remain in the world. They remain on earth, 
and they remain surrounded by people who have a different heart than they have, a heart that's not submitted to God. And that's where there's hostility. So Jesus prays that his disciples would be totally consecrated, sanctified, devoted to him as they live. Just like Jesus was totally consecrated to his father while he lived. God, make these men totally devoted to me. Help them not care about the praise of people. Help them not to care about their possessions if they're taken away. Help them to have a single focus on my glory. That's how Jesus is praying for these 11. He's praying that they'd keep trusting how awesome Jesus is and keep telling others with joy, even though they're persecuted. They'd keep telling others just how awesome Jesus is. The third facet of his prayer is that Jesus wants God the Father to make future generations of his disciples see his glory forever. There, starting in verse 20, he prays that through the testimony of the first generation of disciples, those are the 11 who are with him as he's praying, future generations of disciples would be transformed by their witness, by their testimony. They'd hear how awesome Jesus is and believe it and be transformed by it. Jesus wants generations of people all throughout the world, throughout world history, to be transformed from being self-centered, self-willed, I want to be my own authority, to being united in the truth that Jesus reveals the one true God, that he is the true authority on earth, and to be united in love that's grounded in his love for us. He wants believers throughout the world to see how awesome he is and be forever reconciled to God. Notice, I pointed it out in reading verse 24. I called it the peak or the pinnacle. Jesus not only wants believers to see how awesome he is, in other words, to understand it, he not only wants our lives to be right now transformed by it, changed so that we're united in truth and love. But Jesus wants his disciples to be physically with him forever and to see for themselves for the rest of their lives, for the rest of eternity, just how awesome he is. And he says, Father, I want them to see how awesome I am which is how awesome I was before creation existed. On Wednesday night, we watched a short video, the planetarium show, that zooms out, tries to create a model, a visual model of the entire universe. Can't even see our Milky Way galaxy. Every four seconds, it zooms in by a power of 10. And it takes a long time zooming in, zooming in, zooming in, zooming in, until the Milky Way becomes visible. And it takes a long time zooming in, zooming in, zooming in on the Milky Way until our sun becomes visible. 
and then it takes a long time zooming in, zooming in, zooming in, until our planet becomes visible. When you consider the glory of the one who existed before that, the one who created that, do you think that you might be made to see his glory? Do you think that that could explain the very reason you breathe? You exist by Jesus and for Jesus. It's why you live. It's why you're made. And Jesus is praying that in future generations and in many other places of the world, people would hear how awesome he is based on eyewitness testimony. And they'd say, I believe Jesus is awesome. They'd see it by faith. And he prays then that they all who believe would be with him forever to live in his glory. Incredible. Jesus wants every disciple who's convinced of how awesome he is to personally experience how awesome he is in face-to-face closeness forever. That's the pinnacle of the prayer. So Jesus prays that God would show just how awesome he is. That his 11 disciples would persevere in believing and declaring how awesome he is. And that the future generations of the church would see for themselves forever just how awesome he is. I need to conclude here. Jesus' prayer in John 17 has been answered. It is being answered. And it will be answered. Jesus' prayer here in John 17 has been answered. It is being answered. And it will be answered. He's on the throne. In other words, Jesus prayed that in that hour he'd be glorified and truly on the cross, he was glorified and God was glorified in him. Jesus showed to the world just how humble and loving and just God is. And Jesus was glorified then when his 11 disciples persevered through awful persecution, some of them for decades, trusting him remembering his glory, preaching his glory, and taking the gospel throughout the world. His prayer was answered. Jesus right now is being glorified as people of every language, nation, and ethnicity come to see through the eyewitness testimony just how awesome he is, that he is God become man, the creator become human, That he's the crucified, risen, and ascended king who will return to earth and reign forever on earth. There are people of every language, nation, and ethnicity who are coming to see his awesome glory. It's called the church. It's happening in the tri-county region of Ohio. 
It's happening underground in North Korea, Afghanistan, China. It's happening as persecution and opposition is getting heavier in Canada and in France. Nothing can stop this prayer being answered. It will be answered. It's been answered, it's being answered, and it will be answered. If you belong to Jesus, you've seen his glory, you're committed to him, you don't stop trusting him, you will see his glory. You're going to see his glory. Every true follower of Jesus will be protected from falling away and will be glorified forever. You'll dwell forever in the immediate presence of the glorious God. I was preparing this message and my mind just kept going back to that little phrase of Charles Wesley in his hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise. The Father hears him pray. God the Father heard God the Son pray this way. He's answering it. The Father hears him pray. I want to end by suggesting four ways this should change our lives. First, if you're human, you're made by God for glory. You're made by God for glory. You need to see that God created you for glory. In other words, he created humans to live forever in his presence as royalty. People who know the king and reflect the king in our lives. We experience glory by rightly relating to the king of glory. Do not look for glory within. We live in a self-help generation. Don't try to discover your worth from within. Don't listen to people who say, you're royalty, you're royalty, you're royalty. Just say it ten times every morning. I'm royalty, I'm royalty. No. Trust God. And understand that God's plan for people from the very beginning and to the very end has been to glorify them in relationship with him. Trusting, loving, submitting to him. You're made for glory. And it is only found in connection to God. Second, you're under the authority of Jesus, whether you like it or not. From this prayer that Jesus prays, we understand just how awesome he is. As I was reading scripture, I paused at one point and I said, when he makes a statement like that, you just got to scratch your, your head and say, who does this guy think he is? Because when you read the prayer that Jesus prayed on this night before his crucifixion, you hear him saying things like, Father, I shared your glory with you before creation. And you hear him saying, Father, you've given me authority over all people. <laughs> what? And you hear him praying things like, yeah, and Father, in, in just a bit, I'm going to take my seat again on the throne next to you. What are you going to do with the awesome claims of Jesus? 
Do you acknowledge that Jesus is as awesome as he said he was based on the claims of these eyewitness testimonies, many of them? Are you aware that what Jesus said is true? Paul said, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee is going to bow, willingly or unwillingly. Right now you can try to hear his claims and resist his authority. You can try to deny his authority. You can try to ignore his authority. Or you can willingly acknowledge it and call out to him to be your Lord and Savior. Gladly submit to the Son of Man. Do so even based on this prayer. We know that he's been given authority over every person. Third, if you've committed your life to Jesus, you're forever secure. Based on this passage, every Christian, every follower of Jesus should recognize your security. The way Jesus prayed should wow every one of us that we've been loved by God before creation. The way you know if you're loved by God before creation is simple. You perseveringly believe that Jesus is awesome, as awesome as he revealed himself. Now, I wonder, I, I explained it when I was reading through the passage, but what do you think of that statement where Jesus says, God, they were yours, you gave them to me? Do you realize that you're not only loved by God the Father from eternity if you're a committed follower of Jesus? Do you realize that you are the gift of God the Father to God the Son? Have you ever thought of yourself like that? That God the Father said to Jesus, I want to show how awesome you are by giving you people that you redeem and rule over forever in gracious love. Have you ever thought of yourself as the gift of God the Father to God the Son? That's how Jesus wants you to think. God chose you before creation and has given you to Jesus. That's how God sees you. Jesus gets glory and you get eternal good. Hmm. nothing can ever separate those who are in Christ from the love of God that's been shown to them in Christ. Fourth, don't let present opposition unsettle you. If you belong to Jesus and you follow him committedly, you will be opposed. You will suffer persecution. The evil one Christ's enemy is your enemy and he is seeking for you to throw in the towel on honoring Jesus and start living for yourself. Why don't I live for, for myself for the last few years of my life? There's a whole culture that will help you do that today. Throw in the towel. Some will even help you write your deconversion story. And find what living free from, from the authority of Jesus 
really feels like. It feels great, they'll tell you. Satan, the evil one, would love for you to throw in the towel. He wants you to believe stuff about Jesus. It's only a myth. The church that Jesus wants you to love, it's only a mess. But you're going to have to live based on the truth. The truth about Jesus that's been accurately reported in the New Testament, including here in John 17. This prayer is going to be answered. This prayer is going to be answered. In fact, the entire earth is soon going to be filled with the realization of how awesome Jesus is. Just like the waters cover the seas. You're told right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're one of those people who's on the wrong side of history. I want to know, is that true? Are you on the wrong side of history? It forces the question, what is true? How do I know what's true? And you've got to go back to the beginning and say, did Jesus really change water into wine? Did he really raise the dead? Did he really die and rise again? And did the message that the 11 eyewitnesses carried actually spread throughout the world in their generation? What kind of power could do that? Is that message still advancing? What kind of power is behind this? I'll tell you what power is behind it. The truth. It's true. The question is, are you going to believe what you're hearing or are you going to believe the truth? Jesus wants you to be fully devoted to the truth. He prays, if you're a disciple of his, that his Father will protect you and that you will experience eternal glory in his very presence. And that's going to be answered. Let's pray. Tri-County, if you've just bowed your heads, closed your eyes, I invite you to now lift up your heads and open your eyes. Because we're going to pray like our Savior. Lift our eyes up, as it were, to the sky. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be glorified. That we would keep believing just how awesome you are. That we'd keep telling people just how awesome you are. May we see your glory by your grace. Not just know it. But I pray that we would persevere in trusting it and telling others about it. Until by your grace we see you face to face. Protect us until that day by your amazing grace. Be glorified in us. Amen.